This morning's reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, beginning at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbour? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as Martin said, we're continuing to look at fruitfulness on the front line. This is the series that we're looking at. And this is kind of broken down into six bite-sized chunks if you like. Over here we have our fruitful tree which we put together a few weeks ago. You can see it's bursting with fruit. On each piece of fruit is written somebody's front line from our church. So front line is where we are during the week. So there it might be a school or a place of work or a club that they go to regularly. So it's places where we are, where we scatter to during the week, where we want to see God at work. God's work in us it isn't just about us here on a Sunday, but it's about taking it out, isn't it, that others can experience God for themselves too. So our prayer in all this series is that we would see God at work through us to reach the people we come into contact with each week. And... As we look at all those bits of fruit, and that doesn't include everybody, that's just the people who were there that week, what an impact we can have in our community when we start putting these six M's into practice. 
Last week, we looked at making good work, which was about doing the things that we usually have to do each week, but doing them in a godly way. And this week, as we think about ministering grace and love, these are more than the things we have to do. Grace is a hard word to define, isn't it? God's grace to us is his loving kindness towards us, looking at us with favour mercy, compassion, generosity. And so us then showing that grace to others is really what we're talking about. And Mark Green, who wrote this book and the series, introduces this concept in his book. I'm just going to read a bit of, of what he says rather than trying to put it in my own words. So grace doesn't have to, but grace does. Grace is on the lookout for opportunities. Love doesn't have to, but love does. Love is on the alert for possibilities. The Shunammite wife of 2 Kings 4 doesn't have to proactively extend hospitality to the itinerant Elisha, and she certainly doesn't have to encourage her husband to build and furnish a room on their roof so Elisha can have a place to stay wherever he passes by. But she does that. Jesus doesn't have to heal Simon Peter's mother-in-law in Matthew 8. No one asked him. He doesn't have to go over and heal the paralysed man who couldn't scramble into the pool fast enough. The man didn't even cry out to him. Jesus doesn't have to set out for the centurion's house just because the elders of a synagogue think he should. He doesn't have to turn water into wine. He doesn't have to raise Lazarus from the dead. He doesn't have to come to earth. He didn't have to die on a cross. And the resurrected king of the universe certainly doesn't have to do anything as mundane as making hot grilled fish on a lakeside fire as his fishermen disciples haul in their boats after a long night's work. Jesus doesn't have to do any of those things except insofar as love and grace and obedience to the Father's will compel him. Grace doesn't have to. Love doesn't have to, but they do. So we've just heard the uh, story of the Good Samaritan. It might be familiar to you or it might not be. But it's not just a moral tale about being nice. It's more than that. When I was in secondary school in the 1980s, which doesn't sound so long ago, does it? But you work it out and it's like 40 years ago. I used to be in the Christian Union and we didn't used to have any Christian assemblies in our schools by then, apart from what we as the Christian Union performed. That was a joy. One day we decided to be a bit brave as the CU and we decided to gift a Bible to the head teacher asking him to use it from time to time in our assemblies. And he seemed okay about this, so we were quite pleased. And the day came in when we filed into uh, the assembly hall, and some of us spotted that the Bible was up at the front, and we were delighted. He's going to use it. And he opened it up, and he read to us the story of the Good Samaritan. We all waited. He finished the story, closed the Bible, and he said... This story can have a modern interpretation. We've had complaints about your behaviour on the buses. When older people come on the buses, you need to stand up and let them have your seats. So, 
that's not really the impact we wanted to have of having the Bible and hitting it round people around the head with, with it and telling us off with it. And I never saw him read it to us again. It's a bit of a shame. Let's hope he picked it up off the shelf some point. Let's have a look at this passage. Feel free to keep it open just in case I'm making it up. So an expert in the law asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus threw that question back at him. What's written in the law? The lawyer answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. That verse comes from Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, and Jews would know that well, that's part of their law. And he said, love your neighbour as yourself. That comes from Leviticus 19.18, also part of the law that they would know well. And the combination of those two laws was known as the great commandment. Jesus affirms the lawyer in this, that yes, that is the fundamental call of God to love him and to respond to others in the light of his love. Jesus told him to do this and he will live. The lawyer then went to test him further, probably to see what kind of teacher he was and probably to trip him up in front of others. And he asked, and who is my neighbour? So Jesus responded as often he did with a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, he said. Now not many Israelis today would travel between Galilee and Jerusalem by the direct route because it would take them through the West Bank and that would risk violence. In exactly the same way, first century pilgrims making that journey would prefer, as Jesus himself did, to travel down the Jordan Valley to Jericho and then turn west up the hill to Jerusalem. It was much safer that way, but still not completely safe. It was a 17-mile-long journey and it was well known for its danger. The desert road between Jericho and Jerusalem had many turns and twists and caves lining the road, so robbers could lurk out of sight, ready to strike. A lone traveller was an easy target. So when Jesus said in his story that the man was attacked by robbers, stripped of his clothes, beaten and left half dead, it wasn't really a surprise to his listeners. They probably just thought, well, yeah, of course, it's not a safe road. And then Jesus went on with his story, saying that a priest saw the man and passed by on the other side, as did a Levite. A Levite would have been a helper in the temple with special responsibilities. He saw the man and also passed by on the other side. And there could be reasons for this. Perhaps they couldn't tell whether he was dead or alive. And temple officials were not supposed to contact impurity by touching a corpse. It was better that they remained at a distance. But exceptions were allowed, so they could have stopped. Then came the shocker of the story. A Samaritan travelled towards the man. Just hearing this would have caused a stir. The hatred between Jews and Samaritans had gone on for hundreds of years and it sadly still reflected intentions between Israel and Palestine today. Both sides claimed to be the true inheritors of the promises of Moses and Abraham. Both sides 
viewed themselves as rightful possessors of the land. To Jews, this ethnic group were traitors. They were intermarried with pagan nations and so seen as unfaithful to the nation of Israel. So those listening to Jesus would have fully expected him to say that the Samaritan also walked past the beaten man, or even maybe that he'd have given him an extra kick on his way. But he didn't say that. The Samaritan saw the man and stopped. He took pity on him, and he went above and beyond in his care. He goes to him, he bandages him, he pours oil and wine on his wounds, he puts him on his donkey, he carries him to an inn, he takes care of him. He even leaves money to make sure he has plenty of time lodging to recover. And he tells the innkeeper to keep a running tap so that he could pay whatever it costs. He cared for him in every way from start to finish. The lawyer had started this conversation with Jesus confidently, hadn't he? But he becomes a bit uncomfortable. Jesus asks him, which of these three, the priest, the Levite or the Samaritan, do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The answer would have stuck in the lawyer's throat. He couldn't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. He admitted, the one who had mercy on him. You can almost imagine the scene, can't you? A bit like with a smaller child. You can imagine the answer being muttering and Jesus saying, pardon, to get him to repeat it. The one who showed mercy to him. The story started with the lawyer asking Jesus, who is my neighbour? As he knew he should love his neighbour as himself. But the question is almost, who do I have to love enough to fulfil the command? Or, conversely, who can I get away with not having to love? You see, for him, God was the God of just Israel, and neighbours were just Jewish neighbours. For Jesus, and for the writer Luke, who highlights this theme throughout, Israel's God is the God of grace for the whole world, and a neighbour is anyone and everyone. Jesus' question at the end isn't asking who the Samaritan viewed as his neighbour. He asked instead who turned out to be the neighbour of the half-dead Jew lying in the middle of the road. Underneath the apparent straightforward moral lesson, go and do the same, we find a much sterner challenge. Could he recognise the hated Samaritan as his neighbour? The lawyer, an expert in Jewish tradition, had been trying to catch Jesus out publicly and make him say something supposedly heretical. But instead, Jesus gives an answer about the wide-reaching grace of God which fulfilled the commandment that the lawyer sees as vital. So this is a challenge for us too. Will we use the God-given revelation and our experience of love and grace as a way of boosting our own sense of security and purity, keeping it to ourselves? Or will we see it as a call and a challenge to extend that love and grace to the whole world? Rather than worrying about who our neighbour is and therefore who we ought to be loving towards, 
Jesus tells him and us through the story to be a good neighbour to anyone and everyone. So how can we be good neighbours? How can we minister grace and love? It takes ears and eyes as well as a compassionate heart. The passage says the priest and the Levite saw the man for sure, but only the Samaritan saw him, took pity on him and allowed that to move him to action. We too need to see or notice the people around us, to feel compassion for them and to serve them. To minister simply means to serve. We can easily become overwhelmed with how much need there is around us, which can lead to inaction. But helping where we are is a good start. Fruitfulness on the front line is all about that, serving where we already are. So what does grace and mercy look like on your front line, where you are during the week? Sometimes people can have fixed ideas about what Christians are like, maybe with good reason from experience, sadly. Maybe they expect judgment and lectures. How can we act and respond to them in ways that challenge those expectations? How can we live more generously to the people we meet this week, serving them and showing love in action? I mean, the possibilities are endless, aren't they? But maybe taking a moment to engage with the checkout person at the shop as we go, that we go to. Noticing invisible people that nobody's speaking to. Saying thank you to the caretaker at school or the cleaner at the gym or work. Calling a carer and just asking if there's anything we can pick up for them when we go to the shops. Pausing and smiling at the parent with three frantically tired children. Taking time to really listen to someone and encourage them. Being mindful of how we speak to people and how we speak about people. Offering practical help to someone who needs it. Being a considerate driver, especially if we've got a fish sticker on the back of the car. And in all of this, remembering to pray on our way to work or to an activity or just when we wake up each day, offering ourselves to be used by God. Asking him to prompt us to see people, really see people to give us compassion, to care enough about them and to spot opportunities to serve them in whatever ways we can. It sounds so simple to do that, but I've been a Christian for 40 years and it's so easy to forget, isn't it? So what stops us? Fear? Pride? Busyness? Feeling unsure? Are there people we particularly struggle with? Or even people we feel we can get away with not being loving towards. Let's also bring those things to God and ask him to help us. Grace, mercy, kindness, patience, forgiveness. They're all quite counter-cultural nowadays, aren't they? I'm sure you've noticed this too. So many people seem to be angry, rushing, self-seeking. Why do we need signs up in the doctors to say they're not going to put up with aggression or even in the shops? Not everyone, of course, is like that. But being kind and compassionate does stand out as being different. And when added to the other five M's, 
can cause people to question why we're being like this. A teacher I worked alongside when I was a school governor told me that from her experience and observations, what marks Christians out, and I was bracing myself, was relentless kindness. How amazing is that? From her experience, all the Christians she knew were kind to people and about people. Now, of course, Christians are not the only people to be kind, but kindness should be an outward sign of our faith. It is part of the fruit of the Spirit. But it's not easy. How can we minister love and grace all of the time, or at least more often than not? Well, it will involve making lots of deliberate choices throughout the day to respond well to people. But it's not something we have to just try and muster up by ourselves, gritting our teeth and digging deep. 1 John 4 verse 19 says, We loved because he first loved us. It's about our knowing our God of grace and love for ourselves, pressing in to him, allowing him to work in our own lives, transforming us from the inside out asking him to empower us by his Holy Spirit and allowing him to freely flow through us with his grace and love. It's not something we have of ourselves, it's something we receive from him and then can share with others in his strength. It's an overflow of what God is doing in us. That's really the definition of fruit, isn't it? It happens naturally of a healthy tree. This is an overflow of a healthy relationship with God. And sometimes it can even take us by surprise when God uses us in this way, as such a small act of love towards someone can make a huge difference to them, especially when God blesses it. So what could we do this week to minister grace and love on our front lines? I'm going to be quiet for a minute to give you a chance to think about that for yourself, thinking about wherever you'll be this week, because it's different for each of us. What could I do this week to minister grace and love to the people around me? So we're going to pray together, and if you'd like to, I invite you to hold out your hands as if receiving a gift as we ask God to empower us to serve him in this way this week. We thank you for your great loving kindness towards us, for your grace and mercy that has met us and brought us to you. Please, Lord, would you fill each of us afresh with your Holy Spirit to grow in us your compassion, your love and your mercy that this would overflow from us into the lives of others as we seek to serve you by serving them. Thank you for the huge privilege of your choosing us to be your hands and feet to the people around us. And Lord, as you bless others through us, would you also please draw them to you that they might come to know you for themselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.